0: Returning to life outside of prison, it's called re-entry. Getting people ready to go home just makes sense if you want them to succeed. But we didn't always do this, and some places still don't. What does the evidence show about what works? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com criminalinjustice Welcome to Criminal Injustice, and welcome to this, our ninth season. I'm David Harris, still your all-purpose justice nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system, and still, yes, somehow still employed in that excellent day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Yes, friends, as I said, this is our ninth season. And as you remember from our last episode, we're dedicating our first several episodes this season to the topic of reentry, returning from prison to the free world. It's a topic of great consequence because, as other guests have said here, for example, Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel, our guest in episode 63, the vast majority of those in prison about 95% will someday come home. All told, that is 600,000 Americans released into our communities every year. And that tells you that all of us, the returning citizens for certain, but also the rest of us who will become their neighbors, have a stake in seeing them succeed and become productive. And yet, in so many places in this country, we do very little to make that transition better or more successful. In fact, in some places, we don't do much to get people who we know are scheduled to leave prison to even plan for that. Here's a typical example from New Orleans. In a city where thousands of people leaving prisons show up every year, this man's experience is sadly typical. The audio is from a short film from The Atlantic. Listen up.
1: I remember when I got out, I was happy. I, was, well, I walked through the gates, man. I was, had this fantasy of what the free world looked like and I, how I was going to be welcomed. Into society, and then when I got out, and my lawyers were at the front gate waiting for me, and then on my way home, I was saying, "Man, where am I going? Go? Where am I going? Where am I going? Go? I don't have nowhere to go." It was a shock to me that all those years that I stayed in prison, man, I, you know, I never thought about where I was going to live when I got out.
0: For far too many of those 600,000 released, this lack of preparation and resources needed to survive will mean being rearrested and returned to prison. Over two-thirds of them will go through that cycle within three years of release. So reentry is tough. Getting it right is important. That's why we began examining this issue in our last episode, number 131, with two gentlemen who have walked that path themselves. They told us what it was like for them and for so many others, the difficulties and challenges and most striking to me anyway, how they often ended up having to make their own way in addition to and sometimes in spite of the Assistance they got from correctional agencies or from nonprofits set up to assist them with reentry. So, with so many coming home and such a high rate of recidivism, how can we do the best possible job of upping the odds of success? On this episode, we're going to get an essential perspective on that question. What do we know about what works to help returning citizens succeed? Are these folks getting what they need in most places? And what does success look like? Is it just not going back to prison? Our guest has been at the forefront of research on reentry ever since governments began to focus on it. And she has helped carry out some of the most fundamental research on the topic that has been done. Dr. Christy Vischer is a Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware. She is also Director of the University's Center for Drug and Health Studies. Over the past three decades, her research has focused broadly on crime and justice topics, but particularly reentry. She served as a principal research associate at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C., from 2000 to 2008, where she designed and implemented the pathbreaking longitudinal study of men and women released from prison called Returning Home, Understanding the Challenges of Prisoner Reentry. The Returning Home study is required reading for anyone interested in reentry at any professional level. Using returning home as a model, Dr. Vischer was co-principal investigator for the multi-site evaluation of the Serious and Violent Offender Reentry Initiative. Dr. Christy Vischer, welcome to Criminal Injustice.
1: Good afternoon, Dave. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so glad you've been able to come. Uh, You've been studying, researching, working in the field of reentry for a long time. And most recently, uh, you've been writing a paper about the history of reentry and where it is now. So I'd like you to take us back to 1995 or 2000, that era, when the 1994 crime bill had already been been enacted. It was on the books. What was the national approach then? To incarceration. I imagine some people listening will know, but not everybody. So uh, hadn't it already started the mass incarceration thing?
1: Uh, yes, in, in 1995 to 2000, actually, uh, overall crime had actually been dropping. But we saw increasing incarceration rates all through this period. Um, funding had been reduced for education and job training programs, um, and other kinds of uh, activities and opportunities for people in prison. Um, The U.S. was really focused on incarceration and punishment during this time.
0: So incarceration and punishment, that was the bottom line. It was locking people up and punishing them and opportunities to improve yourself, to learn things, to even earn good time. These things were disappearing, weren't they?
1: Yes, they, they they really had disappeared. We were in a different era.
0: Yeah, and there was this feeling that I remember that, uh, e- that even goes uh, back uh, beyond nineteen ninety five that there was no such thing as successful rehabilitation. You couldn't do anything with these people. It was all about just keeping them out of the civilian population and just punishment.
1: Yes, yeah, yes, yes. that had been existing for a number of decades up to the up to about two thousand.
0: So around two thousand, I can recall this myself i i was I remember being at a conference. For the major city chiefs, I was there to speak about profiling, and we had a surprise guest come into the room. It's a very large room with with a lot of people in it, and all of a sudden, Janet Reno shows up, the then Attorney General. And I know you 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 know of her and knew her, and yeah. she was uh, she was still Attorney General in two thousand, yeah. and she got up to make a few remarks, as you would have guest, the, the, the host asked her to do that, and she talked about reentry. And it was the first time I'd heard anybody at that level talk about reentry. So that was right about the time that things were beginning to shift. And was that true in the research end too? Uh,
1: yeah, you sort of stole my thunder there. So so what happened in, in 1999, uh, I was at the National Institute of Justice, which is the research arm of the Department of Justice. Under the controls provision of of the attorney general, of course. And Janet Rito was an unusual attorney general. She was actually from state and local law enforcement. She had been a district attorney down in Miami.
0: That's right.
1: Unlike most uh, attorneys general we've had then or have uh, since. And she called my director, the director of the National Institute of Justice, into her office and said, what are we doing about all these people who are coming out of prison? We had had a a dramatic... uh, increase in the number of people we were incarcerating and we were letting all these people out. And she said, what are we doing? And my director said, I don't know. I'll get back to you.
0: Aha! Uh-huh. The beginning of the conversation. So the reason that she had begun talking about it uh, and was sounding pretty informed at the time I heard her was because of what was going on back in your offices in yeah. D.C. Yep. And so at that point, people in research circles, in public policy and criminal law and justice circles were beginning to pay attention to reentry. Because Janet Reno and others woke up to the fact that the vast majority of people would be coming home.
1: Yes, uh, Jeremy Travis, my boss, and the director there said, uh, coined a, a prescient phase, they all come back. Um, indicating that 95% of the people who are incarcerated are released. Very few people actually die or or are executed. Everyone comes back. And at that point, we had over half a million people coming out of prison, about 1,600 people a day. But the sad thing was 50% of them would wind up back in prison in three years. So we weren't doing anything to help these people be successful when they were released.
0: Right. 50 percent coming. I think you're talking about federal figures. That was half a million people.
1: Well, that's state and federal prisons. But yes, yes, that's across the United States. Fifty percent of the people who are coming out of prison uh, are are reincarcerated in three years. Now, some of that is for technical violations, not necessarily for 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 new crimes. But still, that's that's a, a huge number of people that that we failed. We we let we sent them out of prison, hoping that they would never come back, and and here they are again.
0: Yeah, and I understand that figure has even grown. The percentage of people who go back within three years is now even higher than it was.
1: In it's in some states it is higher. It's two thirds. It, it's two thirds of people.
0: Right. So Jeremy Travis, who you mentioned, the head of the uh, National Institute of Justice, then uh, later the head of John Jay College of Criminal Justice, a great institution. It's where I met him. Um, uh, Jeremy Travis writes a very important article to kind of begin this phase of reimagining what we're going to do for people. Uh, as they come out, what should be done? What was the result of the writing of his article and the publication of that article? We get some action finally, don't we?
1: Yes. So in in 2000, of course, the um, presidential administration changed and Jeremy Travis was a presidential appointee. And we decided to go to the Urban Institute, which is a a Washington think tank that that studies social issues, you know everything from education to employment to crime, and offers solutions. And so we went to the Urban Institute. At that point, we really didn't know anything about people that were leaving prison. We didn't know anything about them. We didn't know about their challenges. And so we left to design and direct this that first longitudinal study that that you mentioned in, in your opening. We had never done a study like this in the United States before, where we actually interviewed people in prison and then followed them into the community for a year uh, with a series of interviews to find out what happened to them and what challenges they faced. We called it Returning Home.
0: Well named. And it had quite an impact, as I recall. It resulted in some real shifts, some real new thinking, uh, a, a beginning of a focus on collateral consequences uh, those things that uh, the law included things like you could not uh, have a barber's license or a cosmetologist license if you had been convicted, even losing your driver's license, things like that. Things that had not had been real barriers to successfully returning from prison and then setting up a life,
1: yeah. And another thing that happened, um, after we got to the Urban Institute, George W. Bush was uh president, and um. Sort of unbeknownst to us, included a comment in his State of the Union address in 2004, indicating that people who are coming out of prison needed a second chance, and that led to a new stream of funding in Washington called the Second Chance Act. And the Second Chance Act actually gives money to states to help develop reentry programs to try things out and then to, and to test them. That's been a very important funding stream in helping us identify effective reentry programs.
0: So now you've got the thinking in the field turned in a new way, and you've got money coming to people who want to do the work, to institutions that can do it uh, uh, on the ground. Uh, And it really seems to be a kind of bipartisan issue, one of the few. uh, Even back then, those were hard to find. Um, and uh, like you said, George W. Bush in back of it, it passes. There's uh, Now there are resources. Um, and what, what do we begin to see in that uh, George W. Bush administration that era after the passage of the Second Chance Act?
1: Well, we started seeing state involvement in developing new reentry initiatives. And governors and mayors were involved. Uh, at at high levels in developing strategies for their entire state. Uh, We also started to see a shift in public opinion away from tough on crime viewpoints to something more like, yes, I think people need some some programming to help them be successful after they're released. So so the public uh, opinion shift also helped in terms of giving governors and mayors the ability to make changes in their state and local communities. And then, and as you mentioned, we saw that the wide range of collateral consequences that emerged when we started really looking into this problem. And so then some of the initiatives that started emerging were things like uh, what, something we call ban the box. Well, what is ban the box? Well, ban the box, if you've ever filled out an employment application, there's often a box at the bottom of the form that says, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And of course, people who've come out of prison are all convicted of felonies. They have to check that box. And employers were tossing those applications, you know, in the trash can. weren't even looking at those people. Well, the ban the box initiative wasn't was intended to do just that. Ban that box on the front of that application, so that employers had to at least look at the skills and accomplishments of the people they were interviewing, and then had to d- decide after they had already interviewed somebody uh, whether or not a, a, a criminal conviction might be uh, um, inappropriate for the particular job that they were trying to apply for.
0: Yes. And this was this was big. This was really big, Uh, you know, as at least as big as the funding streams that start and the state and local and federal money that that starts. The public opinion shift, that thing you identified, I I remember that as being huge because, you know, if you think back, uh, if you've been around like I have and I guess like you have, too, for a little while, you remember how a politician could not take a position on a criminal justice issue, except to say how he or she was going to be tougher than the other guy, and right. this was seismic. All of a sudden, people were beginning to say, "Why not give a second chance?" I mean, these people are done. They've paid their debt. It's not like uh, it's not like you know. If we don't do something, uh, we'll just get them back. So let's do something. And this was the beginning of political discussion on some of these that made a little more sense, I think, and took into uh, account the realities that people faced.
1: Yes, that's that's absolutely true. Although I have to tell you, there are a number of state legislators out there who are still holding tough on crime views. Uh, uh, we, uh, we still, as we all know, have a very bifurcated uh, uh, political uh, uh, base out there in the United States. Um, but frankly, it's, it's been amazing, this bipartisan issue. I mean, it's been sustained over four administrations now um, through Clinton and Bush, Obama, uh, and, and even Trump. I mean, President Trump signed something called the First Step Act, which is intended to help federal prisoners uh, get out of prison if they've been incarcerated on on relatively minor drug offenses. And, and there was additional funding provided right before President Trump left office to, to fund that initiative. So it's really been amazing, this bipartisan uh, effort.
0: Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I don't know that you would have found the Koch Foundation of the famous <sighs> Koch brothers yeah. involved in this kind of work. Let's let's get down to sort of the question of what works. As you look at the at, at the, the 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 history of initiatives, the things that have been done, the research that's out there, um I've heard it said that we can identify, you know, 3 4 5 key factors in what will help a person succeed. None of this is, you know, guaranteed, but without these this cluster of supports and help in these areas uh, the chances for a successful re-entry are much less. What would you say those crucial areas are?
1: Well, the first thing is to have a re-entry plan and that means uh, a counselor sit down, sits down with an individual that's about to be released probably six months or maybe even more before they're to be released and, and really look at what that person is going to need when they're released. And the first 90 days are really critical for people that are released. Um, Death rates are higher and overdose rates are higher among people in those first 90 days after release. People aren't accustomed to an unstructured day. Uh, They need a a clear assessment of their needs. Uh, They need identification, which we realized starting out and returning home individuals were being released with no identification. You can't do anything in this country without identification. You can't rent an apartment. You can't get a job. Uh, you you can't even, uh, you can't write a check. Obviously you have to have identification um, and you have to have other basic uh, needs such as housing and employment. And we can talk about uh, all of those factors and how they can be helpful.
0: Absolutely. But without that plan, that's a yeah. remarkable thing. In the, in the introduction of the episode, we played a little tape of a man who uh, talked about being released from prison in Louisiana, and he said he was awfully happy to be, know he was getting out, he was, he was going to be so happy, he was really you know looking forward to it, and then he got out, somebody showed up to pick him up, and then he realized he had nowhere to go. He just had nowhere to go. He didn't know where he should tell his lawyer who had picked him up to drop him off. And no plan, no future, right?
1: That's really sad because, you know, we've been working on this issue now for over two decades. And for someone to be released without a reentry plan shows that, uh, unfortunately, the state of Louisiana hasn't been reading the latest research in how to uh, keep people out of prison and avoid them uh, you know, returning.
0: Let's take a quick break here. We're with Dr. Christy Vischer of the University of Delaware. She is one of the foremost researchers in the area of reentry to society from prison. Uh, she's done a lot of the most basic research herself. Uh, we're having a conversation now about what works. Stay with us, we'll be right back. Hi, welcome back. David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice. And our guest in this episode is Dr. Christy Vischer. She is Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice at the University of Delaware and also Director of the University Center for Drug and Health Studies. More to the point with us here today, she is one of the foremost researchers on the subject of reentry into society after imprisonment. So, Dr. Fisher, before the break, we were talking about the key things that a person has to have in order to have a successful reentry, to have the odds be at least somewhat in their favor. And we were discussing how important it is to have a plan, to 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 have identification, those basics before you even leave that prison building. The other items we wanted to talk about are once you're out, now, in your plan, the following things should show up. And I think you were mentioning housing. That's a key element, isn't it?
1: Housing is really important. You, you know, the average age of someone coming out of prison is about 35 years old. And do you know where he goes? He goes to his mother's house. Well, he's not going to be able to get on his feet. He's not going to feel very independent uh, living at his at his mother's house. Uh, those are some of the only places that and perhaps a sister's place these individuals wind up going in the first few months after prison. If we had a housing program where we could put individuals into a a housing situation where they would also get some supports, that would be most helpful for them. But of course, they don't have any resources to do that. There are programs around the country that are helping, they're called Housing First, where the first thing that that you can do for someone like this is put them in a situation, perhaps in a, a group home or in some kind of transitional housing where they can get themselves on their feet. I'm involved in a, a program for the Veterans Administration and one of the things that, for veterans that are leaving prison. And one of the things that project found was these men coming out of prison, they had, had never done that before. They had never lived on their own. They were scared. They were scared. They were nervous about living on their own. So there's this whole process that needs to be developed to help people uh, figure out how to live on their own and support themselves.
0: Wow. So not even just having a roof, but being on your own because some of these folks might have gone, you know, from a family home into the military and now they're coming out of prison and they've never been on their own. Yeah. Wow. It's that basic. So, now, you have to, if you have a roof over your head, if you have a place to be, uh, now you got to have some employment. You got to have a way to earn the money you need to sustain yourself. What works there?
1: So, what the research shows is that this process really needs to start in prison. You really need to start with job training and vocational training that helps people develop a skill and then link them to businesses in the community. We need this handoff from the prison to the community directly to employers and to businesses. Uh, That's the kind of process that seems to work the best. And unfortunately, not very many states are set up to do that. Texas, Texas is one that has allowed businesses and employers to come into the prison to help train individuals and then to have a job ready for them after they get out.
0: How much would that help to know that you, you're you going to have a job waiting for you? Yes, I can see why that would really work. Um, and that takes an employer, I'm guessing, who's willing to take a chance on a person. Uh, they would have to, of course, know that the person would have the skills, but also be willing to take what a lot of people would consider a risk. Is it hard to recruit employers for a program like that?
1: Uh, different states are, have have different luck with this. Um, businesses can be given incentives to hire people with criminal records that reduces their their liability or other problems that they might have. Um, but the the key is to get businesses and employers involved in the training of individuals uh, during prison, and then then they have a track record. They have they have the skills. And they're ready to go into an apprenticeship program or something like that directly from prison.
0: Yeah. So housing, employment with education and training, hopefully attached uh, and starting while the person is in prison, ideally, uh, they're going to need other things too. A lot of folks come out of prison um, needing uh, um, mental health treatment, needing drug treatment, uh, certainly needing access to even the most basic kinds of medical care. Are there ways that states or localities are doing that?
1: Well, this is an area that I'm particularly interested in. I don't think we're doing enough about uh, doing a thorough assessment of physical and health needs as people are leaving prison. That should be part of that reentry plan is a very thorough physical and mental health uh, review to see exactly what this person needs. Uh, mental health illness, among people who are incarcerated is rather high, it's higher than in the general population. So we know that's a problem. Um, One of the things that has improved in recent years is actually a result of Obamacare. People might not know that Obamacare actually through its expansion of Medicaid allowed single men to be eligible for Medicare. And in that way, they could get uh, substance abuse treatment. They can get, get uh, access to a health care provider. And so this has provided some men who are coming out of prison with more health resources than they had uh, even, even a decade ago. Of course, this is only available in states that have expanded uh, Medicare.
0: You know, in our second season, we talked to Sheriff Tom Dart of Cook County, Illinois, and he has taken on the challenge of mental health in his jail, not prison, but jail uh, in a very robust way when he saw that the other actors in the system were not about to help him with this. And I remember him telling me that one of the most important changes in his tenure as the sheriff in Cook County, and he has responsibility for the jail, is the opening up of the ACA to single males, because that while he had them, he would enroll them. And that enrollment could stick for a while and the people could get treatment. uh, And he said it improved things for individuals immensely.
1: Yeah, some states are, are signing people up on Medicare while they're still incarcerated. It depends on the state, depends on state laws, but this is something that states can do. They can get people ready to sign up so that they are able to make uh, and even schedule an appointment for them. So as part of that reentry plan, they have appointments that they can go to in the first couple of weeks after they're released.
0: That must make a huge difference. You know, uh, in our last episode, this is this is the second of three episodes we're doing on reentry. And in our last episode, uh, the first one on this topic, we talked to two uh, gentlemen, uh, both from the Pittsburgh area, who had been released within the last few years, and they recounted their experiences going through reentry. And I think what might have surprised some people is, Uh, the way that they discussed uh, their having to deal with the various uh, service providers. So sometimes uh, this was the parole department, which you don't think of as a service provider, but really is. Uh, And sometimes it was the nonprofits that uh, provide these services in various locations. And I was so struck by the fact that they said uh, that often they had to work around the demands of these institutions to make reentry work for themselves, that ultimately it was up to them that they would be presented, for instance, with here's a job opportunity that you must take, one of them told us. And uh, he said, but wait a minute, I'm already I'm already making four dollars an hour more than this. I don't want this job. And the service provider said, well, no, you got to take it. You're in our program. I mean, is that kind of thing common? Is this something that you hear as a researcher that maybe the service providers are not as closely in touch with what those served actually need?
1: Again, it, it varies by state and by um, by city, by municipality. One of the things that uh, can be useful in those kinds of situations is having what we've called reentry one-stop centers where all of the services are combined in one area. So you can you can sign up for Medicare if you're not already signed up, you can sign up for education or perhaps get into a job training program and make connections to employers all through one set of services all co-located. One of the things we found in a a study I did in Cincinnati was these men were running all over town, having to fill out applications for X, Y, and Z, repeating all their information, and having to deal with all these different service providers. And reentry one-stop centers can really facilitate their ability to, to be able to connect to lots of organizations at once.
0: Well, that is such a great point because you almost could have been listening into this conversation that I had with them because they both said that that was their exact experience. They would get instructions, go to this job fair and they know no idea where it was, how to get there. It's all over on this side of town. Then go to this appointment. It's all the way over the other way, two hours on a bus, things like that. So if he could do it all in one place, that'd be very helpful.
1: Yeah, but But, these reentry centers, of course, They've got to find funding for them. And it's difficult to find funding for them. And that's one of the reasons I think they're they're not as common in cities as they should be. Uh, Either the city or the state, someone's got to step up to provide some funding for them. Uh, I mean, this is something we can talk about a little bit later in terms of what we might need in the future going forward. But I I do believe these reentry one-stop centers are very helpful.
0: Well, so you know in your experience, uh, maybe you could give us an example of one or two places that you think are doing a particularly good job with the full uh, full tapestry of issues for reentry or even just one issue in particular uh, what what places would you point out?
1: Well we're a country with 50 states and and the territories and every, state and territory is doing this differently. It's very difficult to get a handle on, on really what's going on around the country. I know here in the ground in Delaware, uh, the uh, Department of Corrections uh, director uh, and up the chain through the governor's office are very focused on trying to improve reentry services. So we're doing a variety of things in, uh, in Delaware we're doing a very thorough assessment of risks and needs as they walk in the door and then using that risks and needs assessment to put people into programs, to actually place them into programs that we know they need as opposed to putting them in substance abuse programs when they don't need it, which believe it or not happens all the time. Wow. Um, and in in that way, we hope that individuals are getting the kind of programming that they need. And then as they're released, there's a whole reentry process that goes on to help them uh, make a successful transition into the community by having these kinds of reentry planning plans necessary uh, so that they aren't just uh, thrown out the door with with no support.
0: So if you had one or two things that you would want us to remember about what makes for successful reentry, whether uh, that is just avoiding recidivism or, or starting a good life or some package of all of those things. If you look at the full picture, what would those one, two, or even three things be? You've mentioned the funding for those reentry centers. I assume that'd be on your list.
1: That would be on my list. More support for community organizations, these nonprofit organizations. I, I mean, they struggle these community organizations struggle to find uh, funding to to support these really important reentry programs. But going back to our conversation about collateral consequences, I think that is really, really important to try to help individuals uh, start out on a a fresh path, to reduce the barriers to employment, to reduce the barriers to housing, and even to loans. And many people might not know that even the Paycheck Protection Program that was part of the uh, response to the coronavirus had limitations on whether you could get a loan if you had a criminal record. Now, some of that has been modified, but we just need more attention to these collateral consequences, which requires changing state laws, actually. And the other thing which might surprise you is I think we need more attention to life in prison. We're not gonna be able to reduce the the prison population uh, quickly, although a lot of states are closing prisons. But prison experience is very important. We need more attention to to, to the actual experiences of life in prison. We need to normalize that that experience so individuals are ready to leave prison and be successful. Uh, We need more programming in prison, but we need to change the culture of the life in prison so it's not so disorienting and difficult for people. And I think those two things, I think changing the collateral consequences, reducing collateral consequences that people face with less negative and more positive so that individuals can actually begin to to change their behavior and, and start on a fresh path.
0: That's Dr. Christy Vischer. She is professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Delaware. She's also director of the University Center for Drug and Health Studies, and she has studied reentry of society from prison for decades. Thanks so much for being my guest, Dr. Vischer.
1: Thank you so much, Dave, for having me.
0: Let's wind it up as we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And on this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, with thanks to the ever-trusty ABA Journal News Online and the Daily Commercial, we turn our attention to lawyer Edward Lynham of Sumter County in Florida. That's where you will find Orlando many of you out there use social media. It's a common way to connect, to get news, to spread your opinions, or your likes and dislikes. Well, that's all good. Until it's not. Until you are spreading the kinds of stuff that make for, well, an addition of lawyers behaving badly if you are a member of the legal profession. Who knows where it all started for Lawyer Lynam in Sumter County, Florida. It's hard to tell, but a good guess was with his own divorce case. Divorce can be terribly difficult, emotional, even wrenching for anyone. For Lawyer Lynam, it seems to have been even worse. Inside his head and the mistake was to let it escape from his head, through his fingers, onto his computer keyboard, and into the completely public, never-really-disappearing world of social media. In over 200 postings examined by investigators, Lawyer Lynam accuses numerous figures, various judges and officers of the court included, of trying to destroy his life and reputation, and even of trying to kill him. According to Lynham, the judges and others are part of an enormous conspiracy, and the motivating factors and methods are, wait for it, Satan worship and witchcraft. Sitting judges in Sumter County, lawyer Linham says, are addicted to narcotic drugs and are using witchcraft as a basis for their, quote, abominations. As for the judges in his 2016 divorce case, well, they are variously, quote, a degenerate satanic slut, Close quote, a child sex abuser, a white supremacist, fabricators of evidence, and many other choice epithets. Of the written court orders of one of those judges, lawyer Lynham said, quote, her decision to fabricate evidence in red font screams, I am Satan, close quote. The divorce attorney for his ex-wife was not spared either. The attorney testified later that lawyer Lynham's post, quote, included threats of violence, including threats to bomb the county courthouse, to bomb the attorney and bomb the ex-wife. Of course, pictures are worth 1,000 words, they say, and they were part of these posts, too, and they included violent images of guns, fires, and riots. And, of course, he threatened to kill the divorce attorney, the many judges conspiring against him. Well, almost anyone. He said he would be like David of the Bible— Killing Goliath and then holding up his bloody severed head. Yeah. Well, as many cases as we have observed in our various editions of Lawyers Behaving Badly, in which the state authorities have hesitated to take strong actions against lawyers doing their worst, there's been no hesitancy here. Lawyer Lynham has been disbarred. And fortunately, official action has not stopped there. Linum has also been arrested and charged with four criminal counts for threatening two Sumter County judges and others. We'll let you know how the criminal business pans out, but there is some good news here. Lawyer Linum once ran for city council in Orlando, Florida, and also for county judge in Sumter County. I guess folks down there should be glad because it's one thing for a lunatic lawyer to make threats. Because he lost those elections, we don't have councilmen or judge line them. We definitely don't need public officials trafficking in wild conspiracy theories about Satan-worshipping cults, do we? That's this edition of lawyers behaving badly and that wraps up another episode of criminal injustice subscribe to criminal injustice with our rss feed if you haven't already and share us all over social media review us please a good review will help people find us check out our website that's criminal injustice for all of our interviews our news items and more stories of lawyers behaving badly Got a question about the criminal justice system? Well, go to the Ask Dave tab on the website, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. You can also call in your question by leaving us your first name and where you're calling from and your brief question. You call 412-407-3389. Again, that's 412-407-3389. Please remember, we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminal injustice that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash criminal injustice all one word we really do appreciate it thank you for listening i am david harris and i'll be back with you next time Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris and produced by Josh Wallerson. Find show notes and past episodes at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. We've spoken here about the exoneration of the wrongfully convicted, how difficult and how important this work is. But what happens to the exoneree, to that person, after release? How does that person build a life after years in prison for something he or she did not do? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.